You know, I, I kind of consider myself an, what we call an integrative physiologist. What I mean by integrative just means that, you know, um, I don't, I've been trained primarily as a cardiovascular physiologist. Um, and then I, if I, you know, subcategory from that would be how our autonomic, you know, our, our nervous system, that flight or fight response and the parasympathetic nervous system, how that all regulates blood pressure and helps our cardiovascular health. That's kind of where my main training falls into. But, you know, I definitely am an environmental physiologist, meaning looking at how the environment impacts all systems of our body, including everything from, uh, you know, like I said, cardiovascular and metabolic, but going into things, including digestion, uh, cognitive function, um, thermoregulation. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. Welcome my guest today, who is a professor of human physiology at the University of Oregon. He has his PhD in exercise science. He's an expert in environmental and exercise physiology. We're definitely going to get into what in particular that means. Um, he's a founder of the Bowerman Sports Science Institute and outdoor adventurer himself. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chris Minson. Thank you very much, Jesse. Happy to be here. This would be great. Well, so before we got going uh, officially, you said this is one of many meetings you have going today. So hopefully this will be the easiest stress-free meeting that you have all day where you don't have to present anything official or um, tell people they're in trouble or uh, I don't know what kind of meetings you have going on today, but um, hopefully this one's uh, the easiest you have to do. Fantastic. Good. <laughs> Keeps it easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you've done research in a number of areas, uh, but it seems like uh, kind of your specialty has to do with, and you have better words for this, uh, you know, heat acclimation, the effects of heat on the body and exercise. Um and then aging as well, which I've talked to a number of people dealing with aging. It seems to be kind of a, at least for my small subsection of guests, a hot topic uh, to look into how, you know, athletes and just people in general are affected by age. Uh, is that an accurate assessment of kind of what you are focusing on nowadays? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of consider myself an, what we call an integrative physiologist. What I mean by integrative just means that, you know, um, I don't, I've been trained primarily as a cardiovascular physiologist. Um, and then I, if I, you know, subcategory from that would be how our autonomic, you know, our, our nervous system, that flight or fight response and the parasympathetic nervous system, how that all regulates blood pressure and helps our cardiovascular health. That's kind of where my main training falls into. But, you know, I definitely am an environmental physiologist, meaning looking at how the 
environment impacts all systems of our body, including everything from, uh, you know, like I said, cardiovascular and metabolic, but going into things, including digestion, uh, cognitive function, um, thermoregulation, um, you know, all, all kinds of topics. And so uh, I really kind of a, a jack of all trades, I guess you kind of say, um, but uh, yeah, in aging, um, I kind of got into, I first got into the field originally because I was a master's student. Um, I've kind of been a failed bike professional bike racer. So I was looking for something to do in San Diego. And I started a master's program there. And just by dumb luck, I got hooked up with the Naval Health Research Center. It was during the time of the first Gulf War. And we're looking at uh, countermeasures for heat stress. Um, we're going to getting ready to send all these uh, soldiers over to the Gulf. It was going to be very hot when we were prepared for the Cold War. And so um, we were looking at just ways to keep these soldiers from overheating while in the desert. And so, uh, but then from that, I went to work with a guy named Larry Kenny at Penn State, and he is one of the world's experts on thermoregulation and aging. So I took a large aging component from there. So, so yeah, jack of all trades, I guess you kind of say, um, uh, expert at nothing perhaps, but that's okay. I, you know, people often say that, and I, um, I am that way as well in my own degree, not in research at all, because that's not my area of specialty, but I actually think there is something to be said about somebody who takes that approach in particular that, and, you know, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but I'll take a guess that you're probably able to draw disparate ideas together a little bit easier than maybe from, than your colleagues might, because you have well, a little bit more varied um, research background. Is that, am I on point or am I just, Am I blowing smoke here? Uh, I think you're spot on. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that most people in general have the ability to, to know more than just their one area of expertise. But there are some people who are very narrow-minded focused. In some ways, I envy them because it's easier, right? You become expert in one area. You don't mm -hmm. get uh, uh, too pulled in too many different directions. But you know, in my life, as well as in my professional life, I am just easily distracted by bright, shiny objects. So <laughs> if there's something cool, I'm like, oh, I want to know more about that. I want to know about that. And I'm, I'm, I may not have many skills in life, but one of them I do have is um, aligning myself with people smarter than me. And what I like about that is there's some really smart people out there. And, you know, if you approach them the right way, they become really excited about collaboration. You get them engaged in, in various things. And especially those kind of more narrow focus people, they start seeing that, that oh, their work has implications in these areas and these areas. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I'd say, if anything, my research strength has been is getting really good people together to do some really cool projects. Do you have, is there anything that stands out in your mind as like, this is one of the coolest things I've, I've helped bring together or been able to participate on? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's, we talked about age earlier, I guess. And as I get, I get that question on occasion or a similar question. And what, what happens a lot for me is I start looking back at my career and there's probably, you know, three major things that I've kind of taken off after and you can only say that kind of thing when you get older because when you're young you're so new to things you can't mm -hmm. can't say that right so what i'll do is maybe just talk about um uh, briefly mention one in case it comes up and then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tell you where we are right now sure so one thing I, i'd say i'm really proud about is i, I did put a lot of effort on um, trying to understand uh physiology cardiovascular and environmental physiology and exercise physiology um, in women in particular. And this has started because um, when I was back in, um, back that time in San Diego, as I mentioned, as a master's student, um, I was actually dating a woman who was a professional triathlete. 
And, uh, you know, she would ask me questions about her physiology or these kind of things. And I'd go into literature and I'd be like, wow, there's just not much on women. I said, well, if you're a male, I could tell you this, that, and the other. So let's just have you follow these things like, like a male would. Well, that's just not right. So I started getting really frustrated about that. And so over my career, I've really made an emphasis to try and study women and try and have women in as many of our studies as we can and have some studies specifically on women. Sometimes these are pure physiological studies, meaning I spend a lot of time looking at how estrogen and progesterone, um, particularly the synthetic forms in uh, contraceptives, how they affect long-term cardiovascular health and biomarkers of metabolic health and other things. Um, but it's also been involved in, in working with athletes. Um, so that's one area that I, that I think is uh, really understudied. Um, I, throughout my entire career, I've continued to keep that as a theme because I think it's really, really important. Um, secondly, what I'd say is, is really, um, I've really focused on the heat. I have considered myself an environmental physiologist. I've done studies on everything from, you know, hyperoxic conditions and, and uh, deep diving conditions and uh, cold stress and uh, heat stress, as I mentioned, a major exposure. And so heat stress is, is just fascinating to me. And so a couple of things I've done within the heat that I think might be interest to people listening on. One is um, I've really worked to look, understand how athletes manage heat and how we can use um, repetitive bouts of heat stress to improve performance, not just in a hot environment like your classic heat acclimation, but also how we can use heat to improve uh, performance even in cooler environments. Second part of that is I've spent a lot of time um, and this is where a lot of my current funding is from uh, National Institutes of Health and American Heart Association is looking at how we can use repetitive bouts of heat stress to drive physiological changes, almost like exercise, but in patient populations. So we've got two studies going on right now, one with people with uh, hypertension and one of people with um, uh, obese people with some uh, metabolic disorders. So we can just really drive physiology changes with, with, uh, with heat stress. So that's again an area I think I've kind of been, been one of the, the, on the, on the forefront of that. And it's been, it's been an exciting journey to say the least. So uh, take me a little bit deeper on that. So, so what does that actually look like? Are you, are you sticking people in a sauna? Are you sticking them in a bathtub? Are you like just turning up the heat in a room? Like what, what is, when, you, when you're saying heat stress on people, um, and we're not talking about exercise, I think, um, what does that actually mean and, and look like in a, in a practical sense? Yeah, great question. So the short answer is everything. So okay. I'm very lucky that uh, being at the University of Oregon and uh, being a member of the Bowerman Sports Science uh, Center, which I was a, a co-founder for, um, we have incredible facilities. And we just opened a brand new lab that's in our new, in, in the old, uh, I should say the the new Hayward Field, Hayward mm -hmm. Field on University of Oregon campus. A lot of your runner runners will know that that's a very famous track and field. Yep. Uh, just place. recently rebuilt. Just recently rebuilt. Yes, my, my new labs are in that space. Okay, they're in the in the in the in the, in the one of the during one of the corners uh, underneath the seats. We have some beautiful labs, and so in that lab um, we have an environmental chamber. So it's basically a twelve by twelve by twelve room. Um, that we can simulate really any environment that people live long-term. So we can bring it up to 140, 150 degrees Fahrenheit. We can drop it down to, to, to way below freezing, about you know, almost negative 20 degrees uh, uh, Celsius or you know, zero degrees Fahrenheit. Um, we can do all kinds of uh, ranges of humidity. We can simulate the effects of the sun. We can uh, have some uh, uh, wind that we, we can create inside there. Um, we can also make it hypoxic. So it's just a big torture chamber is what it is. And it's just my little baby and I love it. 
Um, and so we have a we have one, we still have one in my old lab and we have the new one now. So we've actually got two of these chambers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one way we use it. Um, and what's nice about that is I can have, you know, these nice uh, treadmills in there and I can get these athletes in there and have them run or bike while in those chambers. I also have uh, really technically three, I guess, uh, hot water immersion tanks, what we call saunas or jacuzzis, mm-hmm. or not saunas, I guess, but jacuzzis. Um, and so we can, we've done a lot of studies, especially some of the patient populations, people's spinal cord injuries, for instance, we put them in the hot water because they, um, they just get the, get the heat stress very easily that way. We also have a sauna that I can use. So I can either do a traditional sauna, which is, you know, typically bringing it up to 180 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, or we can do the infrared sauna, which we keep at a lower temperature, but then you have the infrared waves that are mm-hmm. heating the body from within. So yeah, pretty much if there's a way to heat people up, I've got it. And, and if I don't, I want to get one. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Is just like knowing you're an organ. I'm like, you're gonna have access to a very great student population of athletes, and then you know, probably a pretty good. Uh, you know, I, I guess that I haven't been to Eugene myself yet. Um, tried to make a plan to go out there this last year. Uh, for um, why? Why is it? Why is it not coming to me? Anyway, Olympic um, trials, maybe? <laughs> no, uh, after the Olympics, um, or the track meet. Um, but it, anyway, my, my personal life aside, um, <laughs> it, it seems like you probably have a pretty active, just like general population in Eugene itself, wouldn't you say? We do, yes. That's um, that's a, a blessing and a curse for me in the sense that we have a very active population. Um, we have a number of uh, Olympic athletes who train here, and a lot, and even a whole lot more Olympic uh, wannabes, mm-hmm. where people try to train here to make the Olympic teams. Even um, even for other countries, we have a lot of uh, international athletes who come here and train because the the resources and the teams and the, and the environment is so good for them. And that does trickle into. Um, the population here, you know, we're track town USA mm-hmm. athletes love to compete here because they, they come to the crowds, they come to the stadium. It's got a lot of people in there and those people know what they're, they're, they're watching. They're not just right. watching people run around the track. They really understand the times and the history and everything else. That's great. The downside of that, of course, is that then we have a pretty, a very healthy uh, population in Eugene, which is great, but I also do patient populations. So it's a little harder to find uh, people who aren't healthy, mm-hmm. uh, especially as we're looking at older groups. Um, I can find a lot of older individuals who are healthy, but for looking at people taking certain medications or with certain disabilities or obesity, other things, it's a little harder for us to recruit those groups of people, but I'll still take that over the alternative where, you know, everyone around is unhealthy, but um, it does make some of the, the uh, funding agency funded research a little, a little more difficult. Yeah. It, this, I just talked about this. Um, in one, so I have a different show I do. Where I just talk about running. It's just me sitting in front of camera talking about running. And um, I often try to find uh, research, you know, like yours, to, depending on what I'm talking about, obviously, to talk about, you know, whatever the topic is. And, and what I mentioned is that there's so much research done on college students because that's where research happens. And they're a willing and able, like, body of people to have research conducted on. Um, not everybody has, the, you know, especially lo- like, I'll say longitudinal studies, but even over a year, like not everybody has the ability to commit to, you know, coming back to a study over a year if they've got work or family commitments or whatever. Um, so it, 
thinking about that, do you ever, like when you come up with, um, uh, say, I've said results, like some, some kind of statistically significant result or, or a result that maybe indicates a certain outcome, do you have a sense of how that will play out for everybody else? Or do you just go, well, we know, you know, we know this is effective or this outcome is probably certain in, in the college age population or, or, you know, is there any kind of inference for the population as a whole? Yeah, that's a great question. Something we struggle with in all of research, to be honest with you, is, you know, you try and, you try and get as diverse a population as you can. Um, and, then you try and make inferences beyond that because you can't study everybody under conditions. And by one example, not the one, and I'll come back to the, your actual question, but by one example is, you know, when we study people, uh, I'll give it, you know, with hypertension. So we've had a study with people looking at um, what we call elevated blood pressure and stage one and stage two hypertension. So, um, and we want people not medicated. Well, that means our results are really only relevant to people who are not medicated, which is becoming a smaller and smaller portion because people are getting medicated earlier. Um, where I think there's so exercise and diet and uh, heat therapy that could actually really benefit people before they go on medications. So if we start looking at people with medications, then is that their work isn't relevant to people without medications. Mm -hmm. People without medications, our work may not be relevant to people taking a, a you know, ACE inhibitor or a, or a beta block or something else because their physiology is actually disrupted by those drugs. Um, even statins make some differences. So all those things, you know, it makes it very translatable, very, can be very difficult, but we, we do what we can. When it comes to exercise, it's interesting because um, you're right. We, we get a lot of college student age students, and then we, we get a lot of community athletes um, for our, our studies as well. But sometimes our institutional review boards, those who grant us the, the, the rights to do work on humans, um, they oftentimes want us to limit, oh, well, that's a pretty intense exercise. We don't want you studying anybody over the age of 50. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm over the fifth, over age 50 now. I'm like, well, but you know, <laughs> I'd like to think I could be in any kind of study and go hammer myself for two hours on the bike and be okay. But there, they, we have to find that balance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and yes, we do study a lot of college students because we have them on campus, of course, and they're usually accessible to get in. And, you know, we do reimburse subjects for their time and that can be translate to beer money or pizza money or whatever they, they want to spend their money on. So that helps. Um, but it's a challenge. The what's interesting for me actually is I do a lot of work with truly elite athletes, like mm -hmm. the, the best of the best. But now you're talking about very small sample sizes. Right. And what's hard about that sometimes is I can design whatever study I want, but their coach may say, nope, I'm not having yes. my athlete do that. Right. Nope, that's their rest day. Nope, they, they this is their hard day. Nope, we got to make sure they get this particular workout in. So working with that really elite group is very, very hard. Mm -hmm. um, and even so, then they're, you know, what we learn from them can be translatable to the, to the lower ranks, if you will, of athletes. Um, but, it's, but most of their work is very specific to them. And so it's a, it's a challenge we really have. I, don't, I didn't answer your question very well other than say that we really think it about, we think about it a lot, we do what we can, and we just have to keep doing more studies more populations. And I'm going to follow up something we I mentioned before, and this is, this is the biggest problem I see is that we don't include enough women is not enough women's mm. studies. So yeah. even now, a lot of coaches, a lot of people who look at the science and follow practices that have been done for a long time, you know, women are not just small men, as Stacey Sims, uh, a friend and colleague of mine has said, um, she's one of the leading voices, I think, in, in promoting uh, uh, women being studied more in research. Um, 
and and she's completely right. And so a lot of what we're doing with with women athletes is coming from the studies we've done in men. I think only like even now, I think it's only like thirty percent, thirty eight percent, something like that, of studies involve women. And oftentimes they're not looked at separately. Sometimes you don't have to look at them separately. Sometimes we should. And so it's a it's a complicated issue, and, and it's tough because it takes a lot of money to do more research. And every subject you come in, there's a, there's a time cost for myself, my my staff, my my grad students, the undergrads helping us. There's physical costs, special money for supplies or, or other things. Um, and so we just can't study, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people for one study, unfortunately. That, that kind of brings me back around to a question I had, I had written down earlier based on you mentioning that. And that is, is it, do you think that the lack of data or lack of studies on women, is, is that a result of, I'll say basically historical exclusion of women in sports, you know, because it's taken time to have more and more, you know, women's sports uh, added to any kind of program, collegiate, amateur, you know, Olympic, um, whatever it is. Is it is it an artifact of that? Is it is it a simply a matter of there are more, you know, men who are athletes and able to participate? So just a sample size problem where you have, you know, say you can only pull, like statistically, you're only going to get 5% of a population and there 75% of that population's men, you know, like, is it that situation? Like, what would you suggest is the reason for the, the lack of data or lack of research um, currently? Yeah, again, important question. Um, I'm going to take one of those and to get rid of it right now. That is, the, that is the participation issue. So you take marathons alone. Right now, a higher percentage of the people finishing marathons are females than males and, and 10Ks and other things. Mm -hmm. And so um, the women athletes are out there. And again, one thing I love about being in a college campus area is we've got so many great female athletes. This includes the ones who are the, on the NCAA teams or the ones who are in the club sports or just go into our student rec center. You, I, you will see more women working out and, than, than you will men on, 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 on any given day for the most part. So um, the women are out there, definitely. So I think we can, we can get rid of that one right away. But if we take that historical perspective on that, well, women weren't encouraged for a long time to do mm -hmm. Uh, for, to doing sports and being active in that same way. So historically, yes, it was a problem that there were fewer um, women being active and athletic. Um, I mean, the the first w women were invited to the marathon in 1984 or something like that. That's that's absolutely Jumbo Noit Samuelson, I think it was the first one, right? I yes. think. I mean, that's that's insane that that's how long it took, right? And and um, there are still debates about whether there should be same distances for men and women, and those those debates are are neither here nor there, but I do think that the, um, there are still important debates, I should say, I, should, I should don't want to dis, uh, discount those completely, but, um, but regardless, we have to have just as many women in Olympics as we do men. That's, that's, there should be just as many athletes. Um, Title IX uh, is one of the big things that they have for uh, you know, uh, participation in sports is having equal numbers of men and women, um, or not equal, but rep representing the, the uh, rest of the college campus that you have. And most college campuses are having more women. So theoretically, we should have more women on athletes on campus. So, so that's a huge issue there. So the historical context, um, I do think that the, that the numbers of participants is, is a non-issue now. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that's been interesting, because I've been in, very involved in, in looking at how the menstrual cycle impacts uh, cardiovascular health and autonomic function and even some performance stuff, um, but the 
and that scares some researchers away. They're like, well, we don't want to talk to women about their menstrual cycle. Um, and this is true for some, even for some, some women physiologists have, have told me this, um, although, although less so than some of the men, and I'll say even some of the, mostly the older men. But I found that, that once you get a person talking about their physiology, male or female, when they com they're comfortable with you, all kinds of things come out. And mm -hmm. so um, we do have to think about the menstrual cycle, but we can't let that be an excuse for not studying women. Right. right. Oftentimes you'll say, well, we were concerned about hormonal uh, hormonal changes during the course of the menstrual cycle. So we only studied men. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this or not. So I'll say it two ways. You can leave out whichever ones. You know, I think that's wrong. That's inappropriate. And that's bullshit. Either way, so whatever you want to say. Yeah. I don't accept that. I, I get very adamant about that one. Um, it means, you know, there's so many different ways. And actually people publishing on, on saying, here are the ways that you can study the menstrual cycle or include women um, despite or to include the, the menstrual cycle or hormonal changes or other things. So um, I don't accept that as, a, as, a, uh, as, as an answer for that, for that question. I mean, I think that's fair. And I think to anytime you come, come up with, I'll take this from a math perspective because that's kind of where my brain is. So thinking about if you want to design a study and you, gotta, you have to try to account for what is now, I would consider like a multivariate like response. So in the middle of the menstrual cycle, right post, pre, like you have to figure out where and then each of your participants, it, it doesn't like, the short version is, it seems like the researchers just become lazy and say, I don't want to deal with the extra data. Like, I don't want to have to deal with trying to parse out, you know, all of the extra information. So I'll just ignore that population. It's like, to, to my perspective, or what little that's worth, is it, it's, it shouldn't be a problem. It's just a matter of problem solving, like being proactive to say, okay, well, what, what, data do we need to accurately assess the situation rather than just say we'll just ignore it am i on am i on on board here or or is my brain off in left field again oh you're you're completely right on that yeah i i i, I couldn't agree more with that and it is it is definitely um we know the menstrual cycle can impact many aspects of physiology and some of those will have correlates or have some impact on sports training performance those kind of things um in, in my view the research isn't isn't super strong because there isn't enough of it at this point mm -hmm. but there you know there are some people who are promoting right now saying well during the menstrual cycle and stacy sims is one of these during the menstrual cycle you may want to perform do certain types of training or different kind of hydration strategies or other things and and i don't disagree with that i think there there is to, to maximize performance at the top but for a lot of women that's not practical right you have an event coming up they don't schedule the events around your own menstrual cycle right right so in in training doesn't work that way you may have to do blocks and other things and so there are some some tweaks you can do here and there but what i've seen for the most part is that um you know women can perform extremely well in any phase of their menstrual cycle full stop right so maybe you're talking about eking out an extra half a percent or something like that then maybe in one phase other other phase maybe something will, will be a bit different but i think if they're training in all the different phases of the menstrual cycle or you know if we're taking certain hormone treatments or doing it for um, uh, gynecological disorders or just for controlling their menstrual cycle or um or or, or whatever contraception of course um then you know uh they have to train 
throughout the cycle. They have to per perform throughout the cycle. So, mm -hmm. um, in most cases, I think the, the the variability we see in some outcome due to the menstrual cycle or hormonal changes is usually smaller than the variability we'll see in having a lot of other things going on. Did they prepare ad ad adequately for the heat? Did they prepare adequately for the higher altitude? Did they prepare adequately? Um, did, did they use this type, type of training strategy? What was their training loads on their legs? What was, mm -hmm. how was their sleep patterns? How was all these, right? How's their hydration status? All those things can have such bigger impacts than the menstrual cycle. So, so again, I think it's, um, I think it's important we acknowledge it. We acknowledge that there, um, that doesn't complicate to some degree studies, but doesn't stop us from doing those studies and including women in those studies. I mean, from what, from what you're saying, it sounds like I'm even overblowing the situation by saying, you know, oh, you have to parse everything out. It, it, it seems like it, once you collect the data, in your case, and figure out what's happening, that, it, you know, from what you said, I think I heard that it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> like, it's not, it really shouldn't be a consideration to, should we include like a female population in a particular study in the slightest? Yeah, and so for my own studies, we've sometime, we've done a lot, and this is still something done in my lab, even we got a study going right now, we're doing this, where we're studying women during the early follicular phase. So that's usually during menstruation or during the placebo phase of, of contraceptive use. So when they're usually actively, actively menstruating or, or had been within the last, during the, the week of period of time where, kind of, where their hormones are typically the lowest. And we do that because the hormonal changes might make things a little more, uh, add more variability, or we're kind of, people say we're mixing apples and oranges, we're not we're still within the same woman. And so we then use that to compare to men because um, the hormonal profile for the women then is more stable. And so we do that because reviewers want to see that and we are that way we can include women and we're going to have less challenges with the reviewers. But I don't think that's necessarily right all the time. Mm -hmm. So in many studies, what we're trying to do is saying, look, we're just going to record what phase they're in or if they're taking certain hormone treatments. And sometimes we do exclude people from certain hormonal treatments um, for very if, 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 the, if the study itself kind of demands that. But in general, I think if, if people would just record what phase women are in and when they're when they're studied, then you can, especially if it's like a, you know you're doing multiple uh, uh, phases of a study, so mm -hmm. uh, they're coming back multiple times, something like that. We do try and tie it in, so they're going to come back. If they're if they're in the uh, luteal phase, we want them coming back in the luteal phase. But sometimes you can't can't do that. So as long as we document as best we can what phase they're in um, or what hormonal treatments are taking, and then eventually that that we can look at individualized data if we have enough subjects and say, okay, when we looked at people in these different menstrual cycle phases, we can see what the variability is attributed to that. Um, I'd much rather see that than saying, well, we're gonna exclude women or we're gonna only study them in one phase, right? Because they're more like men if their hormones are down. Like, well, come on, you can't define a woman by 25% of her cycle mm -hmm. time. So it's, um, but, but I do recognize that it is another variable we have to consider and everything else. So I think, if people are being thoughtful about it, and no matter how they're being thoughtful about it, they're not excluding women from being participants in studies, then we're at least making progress from where things have been historically. So uh, it sounds like, so you're running stuff, it was like, what, what are you running right now? What, what studies are, if you're able to talk about it, I guess, what, what, what are you working on at the moment? Sure. So, um, 
let me ask you a question. Are you clarifying like specifically to menstrual cycle in women or, or just in general in our studies? We got I like seven whatever, studies. Whatever, going, yeah. whatever is like, you're like, oh, I want to talk about this. Like that, the, the thing that's, that's peaking your brain at the moment, what, sure, whatever yeah. that means. Great. So yeah, I can kind of dovetail two of those into one study. Um, I got some uh, really interesting funding recently from, um, from within a project in the University of Oregon and in uh, five other universities. Um, it's called the Wu Sai Foundation. And um, they are a group of people who are putting a lot of money towards uh, performance-based physiology, trying to understand, you know, can we understand better human performance? That includes a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. The classic performance, like who wins races, but also how do people perform? How do they recover from, from uh, serious injuries? Can we do regenerative medicine? It's funding a lot of this kind of thing. So I was actually lucky enough to tap into some of that. And so uh, one of the projects we have going on right now is we're really looking at how we can improve performance in women, um, it's in men and women both, but this, the, the, the grant was really focused primarily on women um, by trying to improve their oxygen carrying capacity. So one of the arguments for why women overall run slower than men overall, and I say overall because most women can run faster than me. So this is like, this is, it's right. talking about it's overall. Like inaccurate. Yeah. Inaccurate, yeah. Right. Um, or look at marathon times or, or, or 10K times or, or any, any event, you know, women are going to be a little bit slower than men. Well, one of the reasons for that is, is their hematocrit, crit, was how many red blood cells as a percentage of their total blood they have. And their hemoglobin, which carries the oxygen, is less in women than it is in men. So we're looking at ways that we can actually improve or increase their red blood cell mass. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the means their oxygen carrying capacity. So one way we know we can do that is through blood doping, right? You can inject someone with, with a poetin. There was a famous cyclist, I forget his name, who he was, but someone who got really busted for that. I'm just kidding. Lance Armstrong, yeah. right? We all, we all know the name. Um, uh, but a lot of other cyclists, and, and as a cyclist myself, I'm going to take one small step here and just say, stop blaming cyclists for everything. They're just the ones that had the most rigorous testing and caught the right. most people. But runners, cross-country skiers, soccer players, football players, I mean, baseball players, this thing is, it's every sport you're going to see doping. So let's, let's stop throwing cycling under the, under the, the mat as the, like the sole sport, but, but, uh, thanks to Lance, it's in the, the biggest news there, but, right. but anyway, so, so we know we can do that, but that's, that's illegal and that's cheating. Um, but there are other ways that, that we can see to naturally increase red blood cell, uh, mass in, in people. And there's mostly studies have been done in men. So we're trying to do more of these studies in women. So one, one thing that people can do is this classic live high, train low, right? Mm -hmm. So people are living high altitudes. So they're getting during sleep and other things are getting this, uh, this hypoxic stimulus just to increase their red blood cell mass, but then you're, you can't train as fast and your neuromuscular adaptations and things don't happen, don't happen as well, or you can't be as, as, uh, running as fast at the, at, higher altitude. So you come down to low altitude to train. And so places like Mammoth and Flagstaff, those kind of places where people go do those things. Well, those aren't, those kind of, and those, those do work for some of the hypoxic, uh, sleeping in hypoxic environments or, uh, can, can cause sleep disruptions or they don't recover as well and other things. So it's, it's not going to work for everybody, but we're looking at strangely enough that some of the pathways as people adapt to hypoxia are similar to the pathways that people adapt to heat stress. So we're doing some studies and we're not the only ones to other groups in the world doing this too, where you're, we're taking athletes, we're going to be, be basically heat acclimating them. So a classic heat acclimation protocol is anywhere from seven to, to 10 or 14 days where you people come in repetitive bouts and you, you heat acclimate them. Well, that's too short of a time for red blood cells. So to, to, to adapt. So we really need to get people in more like getting them in four or five weeks 
time periods to come in and get heat acclimated over four or five weeks, not every day, but at least multiple times during the week. And what we've kind of temporarily seen is that we can increase red blood cell mass in, in people. And this may be an interesting treatment for women who have anemia, for instance, or iron dis or, uh, low iron. So we can try and supplement with iron and then try and use this uh, heat stress. And we're going to actually combine it with some hypoxia as well. So heat stress combined with hypoxia to try and give a kind of double whammy to, to cause the, the system to, to make more red blood cells. Um, and we're hoping that's going to result in some performance increases. Um, and so that's one of the kind of fun studies we're doing. And again, it's, it's going to be looking at men and women both, but we're really because of my own history and, and, and um, I think the more fascinating group will be any women. See if we can't increase their oxygen carrying capacity because that results in, typically results in going faster. So, so that's one of the big studies we're doing right now. We've got a bunch of other ones, uh, more, more uh, health related, but that's one of the big performance based ones. I'm interested to see how that turns out. I know I had talked to, um, I believe it was Scott Johnson, who's the uh, author of The Uphill Athlete. I, I think in his book, he talks about um, performance improvements through heat acclimation and, and how heat improves performance across the board, regardless of like whether you're performing in heat, which is kind of the classic reason for heat acclimation, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to go race in a hot environment. Like I need to get ready to go do that. And I, I think after that conversation, I thought about it more. I think it was, it had to have been almost a year ago now because um, I think it was starting to be, it was like cool-ish, but not really cold. And I started wearing like a little bit more layers, like running a little bit warmer than I would normally. But I hadn't thought about trying to heat acclimate some other way via sauna or bath or whatever. I saw um, on your Twitter, it was a, a retweet from Asker, I think about his like bathtub regimen um, of using a bathtub with hot water to help people heat acclimate after like like a 40 minute workout or something like that. Um, it, it, he's all over the place, by the way, um, which I'm sure, you know, it seems yeah. like I can't go anywhere without seeing something that he's done or somebody referring to something he's done. Um, but that, that idea of using basically a, a non-exercise stimulus for heat acclimation, I think is neat. Um, not to try to put a cutesy term on it, but just like, it's, it's fascinating. So I'll be interested to see how things kind of turn out for you guys. Yeah. So um, rather than calling it neat, I'm going to call it badass. Um, <laughs> so that's my term. So we'll, we'll take the cutesy right out of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the studies that you're referring to, and I'll have to go catch that book. So I haven't come across that. Um, he's referring to our work from 2010. So okay. we asked me early in the podcast, some of the things I've been really excited about or what I've done in my career that I thought was Maybe you didn't actually ask this, but I'm going to answer. I'm going to say, what have you done in your career that you thought were impactful, right? No, yeah, and go I, for I it. talked more about the, the women's health stuff. So the other, the other big thing I really did is we were one of the very first groups to demonstrate that we can use heat acclimation. In this case, we did uh, uh, 10 days of, of heat acclimation in high-level cyclists. So for people who know cycling, we're talking about cat one, cat two, primarily I think with one cat three in there. We did have a, a group of women and men in there both. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get as many women to have exactly equal sample sizes, but on both groups. But um, uh, we put these high-level cyclists through uh, 10 days of uh, heat acclimation in addition to doing all their normal training. So I can talk more about how we did that. And then we had a control group as well who just did their normal training and then came into our lab and did the, did the additional cycling, but not in the heat. 
And the outcome of that was, was really impactful. It's actually one of the, the most cited works that I have at this point. Um, and it's just generated a whole bunch of other people doing research. And that's, that's one of the things that I just get super excited about. And not everybody finds the exact same results and, and there's nuances here and there. But the, 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 where I think we are right now though, is that we can use repetitive bouts of heat acclimation um, it can be either passive, as you mentioned, sitting in hot tubs, or it can be exercising the heat, overdressing, those kind of things. Um, we can use that heat acclimation to improve performance in cool or temperate environments. Mm -hmm. And when I first was proposing this kind of idea, people were telling me, no, that doesn't make any sense, blah, 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 this, blah, blah, that. And um, we have seen it clearly, and I know a lot of athletes are doing it now, and we are helping a lot of athletes do it. So, and, uh, you know, we don't publish all the things we find um, because we want to be ahead of it's coming out in the literature sometimes, but mm -hmm. that's an area that we've, we've published and I've been involved in uh, point counterpoints on this and other things. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I've worked with some professional teams who are implementing this now and the feedback I get routinely and the data we see is that, you know, in most individuals, not all, but most individuals who go through a period of heat acclimation in addition to their um, normal training uh, will get a performance benefit even in the cooler environments. And that is just really cool, or to use a term I mentioned before, badass, right? I think it's a really, really cool approach. Um, and there's a lot of kind of funny stories you can tell you about this kind of thing. But one, one thing I'll tell you about it is that um, I do then get, after we publish that work, I do get some, uh, like, especially age group athletes contacting me and saying, hey, I really want to just heat acclimation. I really want to get this extra performance benefit that you're talking about. And after I talked to him for about, you know, literally five minutes, but usually it's a longer conversation than that, I say, look, you know, don't start doing heat acclimation to improve your cool weather performance. Start training smarter, try managing your sleep better, try mm -hmm. managing your food better, try managing your diet, your, your, uh, your hydration better. You've got all these things you can do that are going to drive physiological performance way more than this is going to do. If you get these things sorted out, then come talk to me. We'll put this icing on the cake, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the other take-home message, I think, from, from what we've done is that when, when it's done right, when heat acclimation is done right, so you're, again, you're separating your high intensity work that you have to do in cooler environments to get that speed, just like the live high, train low phenomenon. Um, then you add heat on to, it's not fatiguing you. It's not adding too much more stress to your body and to your, your legs. Um, you know, then, then you can get these performance enhancements. I, I, I fully, fully see that. Um, but if you do it right, there's no downsides. So I mean, history is, is rife with all these stories about people who prepare for this big event, especially like in the springtime, right? And all of a sudden it, it, it gets way hotter than they, than they predicted. They've been training, they're working hard, but sometimes months, oftentimes years into this training, this big event, they show up and they're not ready for the heat mm -hmm. and they, their, their performance completely suffers. They may not finish, um, you know, be much harder than they ever imagined because they weren't prepared for the heat. So the benefit of heat acclimation when done right is now you're prepared to perform in the heat first off, but second off, you may have, if it's not, is it not being hot, then you may have some performance benefits in addition to that. Mm -hmm. So, so we first saw this when I was working with a guy named uh, Dathan Ritzenheim, who has been one of the United States best uh, marathon runners for, for many, many years. And uh, we were helping him prepare for Beijing Olympics this is what that was 2008, I guess. So quite a while ago. And so we were working with he and his coach, working with him and his coach. And um, uh, I had a little concern at the time, so we hadn't done the real research yet, that if we got him heat acclimated, because he's such a, you know, this, these elite in, uh, marathon runners are just like, they're thoroughbreds. So they're just like, mm -hmm. so they're, they're typically 
high strung. This is like they've got a lot going on. They've got everything in their life dialed down to, to maximize performance in every way they possibly can. Um, you know, and I really didn't want to disrupt and ruin his performance in the Olympics because of something we did, right? Mm-hmm. So we you're really, really careful. And we kind of looked at the physiology and we said, all right, so if we get him heat acclimated, we know he's going to perform better in the heat, full stop. But what if Beijing ends up not being that hot? What if we get him ready for the heat and he doesn't, and it's not hot? Did we, did we do a detriment? Would he have, will he go a bit slower? Would there be no change? Or would it possibly be that we actually got him a little bit faster? So Beijing ended up being pretty hot and he performed very, very well. In fact, he outperformed Ryan Hall. So if you watch the videos in the United States uh, on it, you'll notice that um, the, the camera people were on Ryan Hall the entire time and not paying attention to, to Ritzenheim. And he was actually ahead of Ryan Hall the whole time. People just thought that Ryan Hall was gonna do better, but he, uh, in my view, there are a number of problems, but one of them, he didn't get as prepared for the heat as he should have. Um, where Dathan ended up think, placing ninth at the time is one of the higher placings um, uh, for an athlete. And that's not because of me per se, but, but I think we, what we did help, we were, were a piece of that. And so that was the first thing we really started looking at saying, all right, we think we're onto something here because um, we can very carefully in these super elite athletes, um, put heat into them, get them prepared for hot events. And if it ends up not being hot, there may be some other benefits. And, and again, we're, we're seeing that. I know a lot of professional teams are doing that, are using those kind of approaches now. And um, the, the, the body of evidence scheme seems to be growing. So is that, is the effect, as you kind of mentioned, do you think it's because of an adaptation of higher red blood cell count or, or is there something else going on? I mean, you know, you could see the effect, but do you have an indication as to like, physiologically, what, what changes are occurring to, to make this effect appear? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really difficult because um, we've gone through and looked at the data that we can collect. You know, we can't collect data on everything and every subject, it's impossible. But um, we, we go through, we really try and identify, okay, why, what change to make these people faster mm-hmm. um, or, or to perform better? And oftentimes it's really hard to say. Um, we do know that, so in a short period of time, we're not gonna see any real red blood cell mass changes. So if we do a 10-day heat acclimation or 14-day heat, a- heat acclimation, it's probably not going to be red blood cell mass. Mm-hmm. Um, if we do a longer one, that's where we're seeing the increase in red blood cell mass. So we kind of take that one off the picture okay. immediately. Um, one thing that happens, we do know that if you're going to run in a temperate or cool environment, your body temperature is still going up. If your body temperature is still going up and you're, and you're working hard, that means you're going to have a high skin blood flow and you have a high sweat rate. Um, as you go through heat acclimation, you actually start sweating a little bit earlier and you've got a little bit more reserve for sweating and, and for having a skid blood flow. So your, your total blood volume does go up mm-hmm. just because the, the water in your blood, the plasma has expanded, not the red blood cells. Okay. So because of that, you can actually divert more of your, 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 your cardiac output or the, you know, the, the oxygenated blood leaving your heart to the periphery for cooling. And again, you, you kind of start, you have a little more, I hate the term efficient, but we'll say more, a little bit more efficient or a little more effective sweating and heat loss mechanisms. So you keep your body a little bit cooler and then that allows you to have more blood going to your working muscles. So that's one way we think it happens. Um, I do think, and this is where I think some of the debate um, needs to go, or at least more studies need to go. Even if you're sitting in, in hot water, by one example, um, you get um, kind of a, a displacement of blood from your, from your periphery up into your chest, into your heart. And that can expand your, your, your heart a little bit. So your, your stroke volume, how much blood your heart ejects on each beat, right? Your cardiac output is how much blood your heart puts out per minute. And that's a function of your heart rate, which doesn't really change much as, mm-hmm. unless your age is dropping, but even with, with training doesn't, imp- doesn't get higher. 
um, but your stroke volume does change and that's how much blood is ejected by each beat. And so one of the big training adaptations is, is your heart gets, your chamber gets bigger, your stroke volume gets bigger. And that's partly because you got this great muscle pump constantly bringing blood flow up to your heart and it helps it expand. But it's also because your blood volume expands when you, when you uh, uh, train. But we think that one thing that might be happening is those who do see some benefits in cool weather performance is that they're getting this plasma volume expansion within reason, not too high. There's this, a limit by which you get too high of plasma volume expansion, you'll see decrease in performance. But, but it's in that, in that kind of that magic Goldilocks area, area where you see enough plasma volume expansion where over those next two weeks or so, especially if the person keeps training, is gonna get a little bit bigger stroke volume. So we saw cardiac output increase a little bit. And so we think that's a key component. There are some metabolic components to it too. And we've looked at a few of those, meaning that you may um, be able to not rely on quite as much um, uh, carbohydrate usage after heat acclimation. Um, I don't know if that's true in the elite athletes and um, it, it's hard to know for sure if that's really going on. Um, I do have some plans to try and study that kind of question in more detail with some of my, my muscle physiology colleagues because start getting into what the skeletal muscle is doing and I get really out of my element. So I got to surround myself by those by those really smart uh, people who, who work in skeletal muscle and understand that stuff really well. And the metabolism gets really complex too. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so, I, I, so I don't have a set answer other than we have a lot of things. And what I do think happens is that it's um, this, what little changes might occur may not be the same for all athletes, but in most athletes, some combination of these little changes happen that we're seeing some performance enhancements. I, I, before I, I see you're getting right, sorry, I, let me jump in one more thing on that. Go I do it. think one component about this is the mental side of it, right? If you okay. know you've been going to a heat chamber and having to look at my ugly mug for, you know, two weeks, <laughs> You have a, you can suffer a little bit more than most people. And so it's that, that being in the heat and being a little bit uncomfortable and knowing you can run in it and then you find out, oh, it's not that much hotter or, or if it is a little bit warm, but not hot, you feel cooler or, you know, you're prepared for it. All those mm -hmm. mental aspects are, are hugely important and maybe more important than some of the physiological changes even. But um, I would say that that's, that's, we can't by any means ignore the, the mental side of that. That reminds me of um, thinking about Asker again. I think it was one of his studies about the, uh, uh, I think it's a menthol rinse for cyclists. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. It's, it makes you feel cooler, right? Right. So it's like, it, you're not actually cooler, but there's that psychological component of like having relief and then being able to go harder. So I, I think that's interesting. I, I do feel like you should like figure out how to, um, tweak the study a little bit where, where it's like after athletes looked at me for two weeks, then they were able to go faster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, would, I could start selling pictures of my, of my, of my face, of my cutouts <laughs> of myself and make some money by making athletes go fast. By well, just yeah. like every, everybody's like training room. We'll just have a picture of you on the wall. And everybody's there like, you go. who is that? I don't know, but I, if I put him on the wall, supposedly I'm going to go faster. That's right. Perfect. <laughs> I, I got to try and market that somehow. <laughs> Big but heads, it, I think it's called. Maybe it goes with the, um, do, do you mind me sharing the, uh, the anecdote about your name that I, you told me about before we were recording? I don't oh, want to perpetuate no. it. I'm an open, I'm an open book. It's hilarious. Okay. No, I was like, well, it's like <laughs> before we haven't recorded, um, so you can share, but you mentioned being called King Christopher. So I'm, I'm imagining like um, almost like a rapper style, uh, you know, picture of you with like a crown on or something up on, up on the wall. And that's what's in everybody's like training room. 
um, to make to like focus right, on right. Her faster now. But now, now that you said that I was called King Christopher, let me. I think I do need to tell the story because <laughs> okay. otherwise people are like, who is this arrogant like, guy? What, what's happening? Yeah, exactly. No. So what happened was I was a, a new professor, and I'd like to, you know, I had been, you know, I took a few years off to bike race after undergraduate, and then I went to masters, and I did my PhD, and I did a postdoc, got here. So I, I felt like I was the same age as the undergrads. I'm sure they didn't feel that way, but I felt like I was kind of one of them, you know. And I didn't want to be that stuffy professor who's, you know, standing in front of them and just yapping about some physiology and all putting them all to sleep. So I kind of want to be that more hip professor, the fun professor, and. Um, you know, our whole department was kind of doing that way. And so students were got really good at asking, so do you prefer to be called, you know, Dr. This or Dr. That or by your first name, or do you want to call professor this? Because some of the older faculty we had at the time wanted to be called professor or, or doctor. And so they said, hey, do you want to be called, you know, is, is your first name Chris fine? Or, or, or do you want to be called Dr. Minson, Professor Minson? And I said, look, let's just keep it kind of informal. Uh, I'm not a very formal person. So let's just keep it, keep it you know, uh, as, as simple as possible. And I said, just, I prefer to be called King Christopher. And they all kind of cracked up. And then that was it. I moved on to the lecture, right? And I didn't know that at the time that the students thought that was funny enough that they actually um, kept calling me that. They had actually sent me emails, King Christopher. And then a, a, a bunch of my grad students went to uh, Disneyland um, at the end of a, 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 a conference we went to. And they came back with KC, uh, Mickey Mouse ears for me. And so students started calling me KC for short, another thing like that. So, mm -hmm. so it, yeah, it became this joke. And I was like, I, so at the start of a podcast, I was mentioning, you know, you make one little joke in front of a class <laughs> that you think it's going to be, you know, it was literally like 10 Just seconds a toss of my life. Away. Yeah, so toss away. And next thing you know, I'm still being called, students from that era still call me. It still kind of translates to now. I hear, hear some students calling me that. But those students from that time still call me KC. It's, it's, <laughs> that, that, this is a, another dumb anecdote, but um, it reminds me of a coach I had in college. Um, our, he was the assistant coach and then kind of the coach in charge of the distance people on his track came around. And so our, our main coach came on and said, you know, this is your new coach. Um, he's going to be helping out. He, you know, went to Wichita State and ran the 800 there and blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, here he's legit. Um, but he never actually gave us his name. <laughs> we we didn't know his name for two weeks. So my roommate, for whatever reason, decided to call him Mr. T. He doesn't look anything like Mr. T. He's a white guy. He he it, no, there's no resemblance to Mr. T. But that stuck. Everybody called him Mr. T. His name's Kevin. It's not <laughs> even not even close. So, but the the difference being like he hated it he oh. hated being called mr t and he like basically by by this was i was a sophomore at the time by the time i was a senior everybody called him kevin besides me and he allowed me to do it just i think a, hopefully a little bit out of deference for just the amount of work i put in for him like because i never balked at a workout but it just it made me think you turn about it how how something so small sticks so easily sometimes in like college students' brains. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like anyway, it's interesting how sometimes little ideas that you didn't intend to be anything start to take on like a life of their own. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And that's that's actually a good uh parallel or segue, I guess, to to we, we you know I, I mentioned before them. 
I'm easily distracted by bright, shiny objects when mm -hmm. it comes to my research because I get really excited about something. I want to understand it better. And that's how I go. And, and, and that's how things kind of start sometimes. Just the, the smallest little things happen and you're like, well, what about this? And then you get kind of distracted and it gets in your mind and you start following it along. And same thing with, with names, right? You pass something off and it gets a life of its own and it, it takes off and, 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 uh, and, you know, gosh, almost 20 years later, you're still, still hanging around. <laughs> um, Chris, as we're starting to wind down on time, um, I'm asking everybody the same question this year. It's kind of a theme I do each year. I have a new question. Um, so this year's question that I'd like to ask you um, as we're kind of rounding out the year here is how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Oh, wow. Um, I, that's a great question. Um, uh, I would have to say I'm really good at failing. Um, I, I think failure is, is just really, really important part of the human condition. And so, um, there's been a lot of, uh, statements. I probably butcher all of them or, or trying to pull one of them, you know, but, but, um, the only failure is not learning from your failures or something down those lines. Right. So, um, yeah. So as far as learning from failures or how do you move on from failures, um, if I can take the example of research, you know, oftentimes you go in with the best intentions for a project or, or it's just the best intentions, but they're a really good idea you're excited about. And then you don't see the results you think. Well, when you really dive into it, you start finding oftentimes much more interesting physiology or much more, you get much better questions than you ever would have had. If you answer the question, you're done. You're like, hey, did that, solved it, yay, win. Put it, put it in, the, in the W column. But the, the learning from, from things that don't work out the way you plan is, is, is really big. Um, I will tell you, um, so I do do, I still do jumping bike races and, you know, um, just for, for fun and other events um, as well. But um, I did uh, a few years now, I've done a bike race uh, called the Skull 120. It's 120, actually 128 miles of a gravel race in Eastern Oregon. And it can be very hot. It's, uh, it's some of the roughest gravel roads and I'm not, you can't call them roads sometimes gravel races I've done. Um, and I've very, I don't think I've only DNF'd once in a race before. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when I cut my foot during a triathlon in uh, in Lake Mead. And, um, and so a buddy and I went to go do it and we weren't racing to be serious. It's, it's really, this race is more of an adventure. It's like, can you finish it? And we had finished it before. Um, and, uh, I wasn't planning on doing it. I had a bunch of mountain bike things I had kind of on my list and then my, my buddy really wanted to do it. So he talked me into it. So I, I was, but I was fit enough. I sh I could jump in and do that. that, that it's, it really is like 10, 11, 12 hours on the bike. Um, so it's not, not easy undertaking, but I felt like I can do this. We were talking the night before we're like, okay, neither of us are the fitness is where we want to be, but we will finish whatever. Right. Yeah. I just had a bad day. Like from the moment I, even on my bad days, typically in training, you can either stop or whatever, but oftentimes you, you get into it and about an hour into it, all of a sudden something clicks and your legs start feeling better. And you've got to go, wow, I can, I can make something of this. Or if nothing else, I can keep going. I can mm -hmm. keep going. And so, but it just didn't, my body didn't turn on that day. And it was a combination of many things, I think, but um, some of it was mental fatigue, I think, just from the whole pandemic and a bunch of other things as well. And so I was just exhausted on the bike. I was literally climbing up on my bike up these hills and closing my eyes for like periods of five ten seconds just to try and rest and try and go and we got to, to one point we we knew this last section is just horribly miserable really really deep sand and um on these roads and just horrible and it's gonna be totally exposed and and, and little over 100 degrees but i'm the heat guy i'm supposed to be able to, be able to make it right and 
I was just not willing to throw in the towel. I just wasn't. And my buddy, Michael, he basically is like, I just DNF'd you. I'm like, oh, he said I DNF'd us. And he was feeling great, right? And so I was, I was like, no, you can't do it, you can't do that. And he's like, we had an adventure together. We had fun together. This is what I wanted to do. This is this is it. So we still had another 20 miles to ride. It was gonna be more on the road as opposed. So we did, I think, 118 out of the 127 miles. But that was a really good lesson for me because I tend to push myself too hard. Mm-hmm. I tend to have the goal, the end goal being more important that is to, to finish the, the this this race. Um, and that wouldn't have been smart. It could have and would we have done it? Yes, we probably would have finished it. Would have been sucked? Yes. Have done that kind of thing many times before? Yes. But that doesn't mean that on that day, that was the right choice. So I'm really trying to learn that that um, sometimes stopping and saying, let's look at what was good that happened is more important than than uh, than saying we finished. So so that's a I got very philosophical, uh, sensitive, personal, whatever there. But that's, um, that's a big lesson I learned. Because if the pandemic, I think we really have to show ourselves some self-care, some self-love, and I'm bad at that. So <laughs> I'm hoping to try and learn, learn from people around me who, who are much better at that. And that was, that was an example. So I'm, I'm really grateful to my buddy, Michael, for, for helping me see that. That's a good, I'm, I'm glad you shared that. It, it's, you know, everybody deals with failure differently, which is why I think there's a good question for me to ask this year. And that we all deal with failure, whether we're athletes or researchers or career people or musicians, whatever it is, like, I I think you said, like, failure is a large part of the human condition. Like, it's, it's just, it's something that we all do. And I, I think it's easy sometimes for us to just look at the world through our own lens. Like, these are our experiences. And then if we're not careful to make inferences about the experiences everybody else has which isn't necessarily the case like you know you're talking about um being too hard on yourself or pushing yourself too hard sometimes or as maybe other people have a hard time getting started how you each approach failure may be different and that's part of the reason i, I wanted to ask because not the same advice hits everybody the same way and i always like hearing just how people approach it um, from, you know, just from a personal standpoint, wanting to grow myself and, you know, hear about different perspectives and try to reflect on my own, but, um, we'll not, we'll not dive too far down that, that rabbit hole. So, um, also, also, I, 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 I cry pretty easy. So I'll start getting teared <laughs> up. You go too much farther on this one, but, but it's a great question. It's a beautiful question. I like yeah. it. It's great. Um, Chris, uh, is there any place people can connect with you, check out your research, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, so the best way to connect through what I'm doing is through the University of Oregon website, just uh, www.uoregon.edu, and you'll get to my website, which is about four years behind, <laughs> fortunately, but um, you get my email address that way. Um, I am on Twitter, but very rarely. It's really it's a science thing. I kind of follow uh, what's mm-hmm. happening in the science. I post it every now and then on there, but um, uh, uh, we're going to be revamping and really getting a much better dynamic uh website 
for myself that should be coming hopefully in the next month or so and i'll be putting i'll be updating that more regularly i hope so that's that's really the best place to kind of follow me i wish i wish i was one of these people who really liked being on social media but i just i just don't get a whole lot of joy out of it and i just kind of like doing my thing so um uh maybe i'll have to change that or hire someone to, to help me do that but go. that's about that, looking at our website is probably the best place to follow stuff and twitter i guess on occasion yeah sounds good uh thanks for hanging out with me today chris Oh, it was awesome, Jesse. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks for the invite, and uh, I, I like the podcast. I'm listening to a bunch, uh, getting ready for this thing, and it was just uh, it's really fun hearing your your different uh, wide range of topics, and and uh, it's just it's just it's a breath of fresh air to not be just so narrowly focused on one topic and having a lot of topics and a lot of different uh, different perspectives. It's great. I appreciate it.